Jessica. And I'm David, and this is Passports and Birth Control, a couple's take on international travel. Now last time we were talking about Köln, a city right on the edge of the Rhine River. And so we took a train all the way across Germany, from Cologne all the way to Berlin, which is further in the east of Germany. Now Berlin is the capital of the modern-day nation-state of Germany, but it's also the ancient capital of Prussia. Germany used to be divided into a variety of different little kingdoms for the longest time, up until the late 1800s. Berlin became the capital because Prussia sort of dominated the other areas. And so Berlin is the older capital, capital of Prussia, and capital of modern-day Germany. And it is a thriving metropolitan city full of history. You'd be surprised because you think, Berlin, that's, well, that's where the Nazis are from, right? And yeah, that's true. There's lots of great and fascinating World War II, Cold War artifacts, but it is a historical city and a thriving modern-day metropolis. The city is growing leaps and bounds, and it is a can't-miss destination regardless of what your interest is in if you want to see Europe. Right, and a great part of Berlin is they do address the complexity of their history. I feel we need to, in all fairness to Germany and the German people, point out that they really do handle the complexity of their history with great dignity and aplomb. Yeah, they're not hiding anything. They're not, they're not, they are certainly ashamed of their past, but they're not hiding behind it. They are going to put it full front for everyone to see and say, look at the horrible things that we did. And we are trying to make up for it. We're trying to be better people, but we're not trying to suppress it. Right. Now, we stayed in the City Stay Hostel. This was a group hostel with a little kitchen, nothing fancy, nothing spectacular, just a nice, comfortable place to sleep and do a little cooking to save a little bit of money, which is not a bad thing, especially on these longer trips like we took. Right. You can get groups of up to 10, 20 even in these bigger rooms that have shared bunk beds. You can book a bed rather than a room, but they also have private rooms available, and that's what we did. Extremely cheap, but the best thing about it is it's right on Unter den Linden Street, which is the famous main thoroughfare of Berlin. It goes right through the Brandenburg Gate, which is that famous edifice that you, well, it's pretty much the symbol of Berlin. So we get to our hostel, and the first thing we want to do is go on Unter den Linden, and we're just going to see the sights between there and the Brandenburg Gate. And there are plenty to see. The first thing we happen upon is the Berliner Dome. It is a gorgeous cathedral that is just enormous. A lot of cathedrals have Gothic architecture and lower edifices that sort of rise to a tower. This one was interesting because it's like a solid block, a huge marble-looking block with a big dome right in the middle. It's very modern-looking. And so in the sense that cathedrals were built to show the power and grandeur of a nation-state or a kingdom, this does that, but it was built in the 1800s. So it is just modern-looking as well as being imposing and grand. We were able to go in there, and they had these graves of the old Kaisers that were still buried there. And it was quite fascinating. There was a bit of the attempted grandeur of pre-World War I Germany on display. They, they wanted to be this great imperial power, and this dome was supposed to showcase it. But 
you know, suffice it to say that didn't work out for them. And they, they're certainly not happy about how that went. And, and they're not proud about how that went. But it is still a grand looking cathedral. They have this amazing looking pipe organ inside. Kind of like the Cologne Cathedral. It's not quite as stained glass window decorated and grandiose. And it certainly is more imposing on the outside than in. But you can get in there and you can wander around and it is certainly worth the trip. Oh, especially that gorgeous wooden pulpit at the front of the church. Do you remember that ornate, imposing pulpit? Yeah, it's it's just this phenomenal Prussian-looking building. It's it's both religious and awe-inspiring, but also very, you know, rough and 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 uh, and just just masculine. <laughs> in, That's in its, a great word for it. Yeah. So further up Unter den Linden is the Brandenburg Gate. Now the Brandenburg Gate is of course a must-see part of Berlin, the symbol of Berlin. You walk up to it and, uh, well, the unfortunate fact is it's just kind of a gate. It's there, you can see it from all around, you can get up close to it and you can see the concrete edifices. It was majorly damaged in World War II, it has been restored, it looks quite nice now. And we walked down there and we saw the gate. Right next to it is the Reichstag building. Now, this is where the German parliament meets. It's also the place that was the capital of Berlin during World War II. So it's the same building, but kind of not, because the stone out exterior is all that remains. The interior was completely gutted, and in fact, they added this glass dome on top of it. So it's kind of this old and new-looking building. It's kind of like, imagine if the U.S. Capitol was burnt to the ground and we rebuilt it and put a glass dome on top of it. But it's fascinating for both because it's a modern day capital of Germany where the parliament meets, where the prime minister does their work. And it's also the place where the Soviet Union raised the flag of the Soviet Union on top of that building as a final declaration of victory over the Nazis. There are bullet holes in various different buildings throughout Berlin that have been preserved or they're old buildings that they just didn't want to repair uh, or, or felt that to repair these old bullet holes in these old concrete and stone structures would take away from the ancient history of it. And so you look at the Reichstag, you look at these other buildings, and you still see a little scarring to it. And you have to keep your eye out for it. But it's readily available to see, and you can feel as you're walking throughout the city, you feel the history of it. It is a very heavily weighted city for that reason. And actually, part of that feeling of history in the city is the remnants of the division between East and West Berlin. To this day, you can see, and you can Google this and see it in, in street photos, the difference in what was once East Berlin and what was once West Berlin. You can see West Berlin, more metropolitan, lots of glass and steel buildings, and on the other side, older buildings. Now that's quickly changing, of course. It's been 30 years since the Berlin Wall fell, but that division kind of lasts in the geography and architecture of the city, but it is quickly being overtaken by development. As I said, the city is rapidly growing. Right. Now, one of the best things to do in Berlin is Museum Island. Oh, my favorite thing. I love it. There are so many museums clustered in this one place. You have the New Museum. You have the Pergamon Museum. You've got the Altos Museum. All these amazing museums all in one space. 
It's a great place to spend a day or ideally a couple of days. Now we did the new museum first. Now this is such an incredible place. This has a lot of Egyptian artifacts, including what was one of my favorite artifacts in Germany, the famous bust of Nefertiti. You know this one? It's the tall and slim woman with the flat topped crown. Everyone knows this. We couldn't photograph it. They did not allow photographs. But to see this particular artifact in person was so amazing. You see it on so many history textbooks and so many photos. And it's in really remarkable condition for how old it is. That's probably why it's so famous is you just look at this Egyptian artifact from well over 3,000 years ago. And you're like, holy crap, this is just like brand new and, and, and gorgeous. And you get to really feel a sense of what the culture was like. They also had some recreations of some tombs and some sarcophagi that we could walk around. And so you really got a good sense of Egypt in this new museum. Right. And uh, it was not just the bust of Nefertiti in remarkable condition. There were some other artifacts. They did not look like they bore the weight of the centuries they bear. One of my favorite things that was actually in somewhat poorer condition was the Book of the Dead, the famous Book of the Dead. They have a the most a thorough reproduction of it uh, because they had, can't do it all. They just have this big papyrus that's just stretched out across an entire room. And it's the book, the famous Egyptian Book of the Dead. So it's a great Egyptian history museum. Right. So if you're any way interested in Egyptian history, do not miss the new museum. Now there's also, as I mentioned, the Pergamon Museum. This is one further, the ancient temples and the famous Ishtar Gate. Now this is recreated with a combination of original pieces recovered from the site as well as modern bits that sort of fill in the gaps a little bit. It's unlike any museum I'd ever been to. It was more interactive because it's not just, here's a brick from the Ishtar Gate. Here's a statue from this temple. They took all the blocks, all the statues, and rebuilt them. And whenever there was a missing piece, because wherever they went to these sites, there were ruins. So they just collected all the bricks, collected all the ruins, put them together, and whenever there were gaps, they just put in modern-day materials. Now, they didn't try to hide where was modern-day and where was ancient. They, they clearly showed that, you know, this is just a wooden block we're putting in here, and the rest is these clay-painted stonework. This beautiful blue stonework. Yeah, and so you got to sense to feel like, oh, this is what it actually looked like. It wasn't just an artifact. You're like, this is the Ishtar Gate. Right. This is how it looked when it was new and in use. And it really gives you a great idea of the scope and the scale and the grandeur of this particular place. Because the Pergamon Museum was named for the Pergamon Temple, of course. And so this was a physical place people went. Right. So they rebuilt this Greek temple and you can walk around in it. You can look at it. You can't just see an artifact in a glass chamber and say, oh, I wonder what that looked like. And here's an artist's representation. No, you're walking around it. So for that reason, it's unique. It makes you a little bit weirded out for that reason too. Also because there are so many, you know, they filled in the gaps and there's this famous ship of Theseus idea, you know, uh, the ship of Theseus is in a museum and, and it rots. And so they keep rebuilding it. And so they keep on adding planks and eventually none of the materials are original. When does it stop being the ship of Theseus? If you go to the Pergamon Museum, when does the Pergamon Temple stop being the Pergamon Temple as they keep replacing the blocks with new reproductions? 
forget the philosophy of it. Just enjoy the museum because it's a great interactive experience that really makes the ancient cultures come alive. Right. Now, there's also the Altes Museum. We didn't make it to this one ourselves, but you really should check it out if you have time. We unfortunately did not. One of the museums also that are not on Museum Island, but I highly recommend it. It's just a little bit up Unterdenlinden. By the way, Museum Island, right on Unterdenlinden, right between the Berliner Dome and the Grand Brandenburg Gate. Everything's on Unterdenlinden. It's a great street. But a little up Unterdenlinden is another museum, not on Museum Island, but one of my favorites. It's the German History Museum. As I said, Germany didn't really exist until the 1800s. But the Germans as a people existed for several thousand years, and they've been living in this area for a long time. This museum traces their history from ancient times a little bit, but mostly focuses on the last 500 years, when they were called the Holy Roman Empire. They were neither holy nor Roman, <laughs> and not really an empire, but they were a collection of city-states and kingdoms in what is today Germany. And so there's lots of artifacts, knights, uh, lances, and, and, and armor, and cannon as you trace the history of Prussia, because that's where Berlin is, that became the capital city of Greater Germany. So Napoleon lost a battle in Germany, and he forgot his sword and his hat. And they've got his sword and his hat on display in as a glass well case. His coat. And his coat. And you get to see, oh, that look, that's Napoleon's sword. Oh, he forgot it and he ran off and when he fled the battle and they put, you know, th there's his famous hat. That's Napoleon's hat. It was kind of neat to be able to see that. And it was also kind of a war trophy. They're like, ha ha, we got your hat. In addition, at the end of the museum, they do definitely acknowledge the World War II elements. They're not hiding that at all. They're like, this is what we did. This is a part of our history. This is what we did to the Jewish people. This is us invading other people. This is the military equipment that we used during this. This is a anti-aircraft gun that we used to shoot at Americans who came over to bomb us in, in Berlin. It's fascinating, this museum, because you get to see everything from 500 years of history, from 1500s all the way to modern day, including a little bit about the Cold War, although less as much, although less on the Cold War. So if you really want, and I did, you can explore Berlin explicitly looking for the World War II and Holocaust memorial elements. So as we said, Berlin and Germany are not hiding their crimes in World War II and in the Holocaust. They very much have a cultural zeitgeist of mea culpa. Right. And one of the most easily findable ones is the Burning Books exhibit. You probably have seen film or heard about these famous bonfires where they burn books that were anti-German or you know anything that was pro-Jewish or by a Jewish author. And they had these giant bonfires in Berlin. Well, they, they know where that took place. It took place right in front of a library of a college right on Unterden Linden Street. Again, everything's on Unterden Linden Street. It's ironic because it's right across the street on the other side of the street from Museum Island. So you got Museum Island just juxtaposed with this college where there's these all these bonfires. And they point out that this was also where Hitler wanted to build his giant domed capital building that never got built. So Museum Island predates Nazi Germany. It was a late 1800s, you know, 
Prussia becoming Germany, very proud moment, and they wanted to become the capital of history in Europe. And in a lot of ways they were, and in a lot of ways they're coming back again. But there was a long interruption of Germany's history mindset and Germany's you know, sort of status in the world with World War II and the Cold War. And so it's kind of ironic to see Museum Island, and then over here in front of this library, there's a glass platform. And you walk over to this glass platform and you look in and there's sort of a vault and there's just a bunch of white painted empty bookshelves inside this vault beneath this glass uh, platform. And that's the memorial to this is all the empty bookshelves that we took out when we were burning and we were against history, against learning. And so it's a rejection of that. It's saying, no, we're not going to do that again. We're going to embrace Museum Island. We're going to embrace this college. Further Nazi artifacts or German uh, artifacts from World War II are kind of hard to come by. The city was largely destroyed during World War II. There was a significant amount of damage. But one of the only buildings to survive, ironically, was the German Air Force building, the headquarters of the Luftwaffe. Today, it's used as the financial headquarters of, of Germany, so it makes a lot of important decisions. So you can see this imposing-looking building. And if someone told you that's a Nazi building, you'd be like, yeah, that, that kind of looks it. There's no swastikas on it, of course. Or <laughs> they, the eagles. Or the eagles. They got rid of all of those. It just looks like an office building now. But right next to it is an empty lot. Now, as I said, there's not a lot of Nazi-era buildings, but this empty lot is one of the few that they preserved to memorialize the crimes of the Nazi regime. It's actually where the headquarters of the Gestapo was, the famous secret police of the Nazis. And this is where a lot of people will be tortured, a lot of people will be imprisoned and sent off to death camps. And so they kept this empty lot in downtown Berlin as a memorial to their crimes and saying, look, we're not going to build anything here. We're going to remember how terrible this was. The building was largely destroyed, but they found in the basement area a few tiled rooms and a few cells. And so they've got those on display and you can walk around and you can see them. And it's, it's harrowing thinking that this was a cell where a Gestapo agent held you know, maybe an underground uh, rebel or, uh, of some kind. So it's harrowing to see that. Another museum that you can enjoy, or I guess it's tough to enjoy say. Enjoy is not really the right word. It appreciate. is Appreciate, yes. It is a worthwhile experience. It is the Jewish History Museum. Now, this is an experience because it's actually architecturally designed to make you feel uncomfortable. The walls are a little bit angled weird. The hallways are not on an even ground. And there are some rooms that are designed not to show you what it was like to be in a camp or anything, but to make you feel extremely uncomfortable and have a vague sense of dread. There's this tower that they, you can go into that is pitch black. Bright sunshine in the middle of Berlin and you can't hear a thing. And it's this high-ceilinged room, and it just makes you feel, it's just unsettling. And so the whole museum is intended to create an emotional response out of you, rather than just showcase artifacts. Now, there are certainly artifacts there. You get to see you know, the Jewish golden stars that were out there, and it talks about the harrowing experience of being a proud German person who happens to be a Jew. I mean, a lot of these Jewish people, they were proud veterans of World War I, and then they get, because they're Jewish, they have to get catered off to a, a death camp. It was just a horrible experience. And a little bit further away from this, 
the most prominent memorial to the crimes that the Nazis committed is the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin. It's right near the Brandenburg Gate, so it's not being hidden at all. It's an interesting memorial. It is uneven ground, brick paved, with these obelisks that are standing all around. Solid, plain, gray stone obelisks. Yeah, it's these granite platforms that rise of varying height. And again, it's not supposed to look like anything. It's supposed to elicit a feeling. It's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable, maybe a little paranoid. And it's supposed to make the whole experience be an emotional response, not something that they just say, you know, I mean, how do you even comprehend the, the crimes that were committed? You walk into it, you feel lost and disoriented. Yeah, it, it's it's a outdoor memorial you can walk in and out. It's obviously it's free because <laughs> they don't want to hide that. But it's it's a solemn experience. Definitely worth going to to recognize what happened. Right. Again, this is very much part of German Germany's modern culture. Is this zeitgeist of mea culpa? Now, after this, we needed a palate cleanser. So we went, we got some schnitzel, and we got these amazing beers, and we went to see, at the Brandenburg Gate, the match between Germany and Poland. Again, the Euro Cup was happening when we were there. We got to be in Berlin for the match between Poland and Germany, and they were had a big screen set up at the Brandenburg Gate. I was so excited. I was like, we're going to be in a big soccer match between two nations, and we're going to be in the nation's capital. And I just dreamed about that moment where the German fans get a... They see a goal happen for Germany, and the German fans go, goal! And they scream, and everyone's all excited. I was like, I want that. I don't really care if Germany wins the game or not. I just want to be in a big crowd when everyone screams goal. And it really was a festival atmosphere. There were drinks, and there was... This, again, this giant screen. They took up all the backside of the Brandenburg Gate to show off the soccer game so that everybody could watch it all at once. Part of the tension of this game was the unfortunate history between Germany and Poland with the Polish invasion. And so, of course, you had these German fans, you had the Polish fans. And so we got this wave of very intoxicated Polish people coming through the crowd. They invaded the area. It was almost like they knew that they were getting a little bit of payback. A bunch of Polish fans came in waving Polish flags going, Polska, Polska, and none of the Germans said anything. Silence from the German crowd. They were cheering one second, and then the Polish came in screaming Polska, and the Germans were like, we are not going to say anything. Because if we tell them to shut up, they're going to tell us how wrong we are to tell them to shut up. So we're just going to be polite, let them pass, and not bother them. Let them keep chanting Polska. Now, unfortunately, it was not the Germans who got punished here. There was one <laughs> particularly intoxicated lady, and I will allow you to take this So story. there's this very intoxicated Polish lady who was one of many, actually. A lot of them were just completely blackout drunk. The Germans were not sober either. Yeah, no, I'm not saying anybody was sober. I wasn't sober. I I'd wasn't. Ha I'd had plenty of... Uh, of, uh, of uh, liters of beer? Yeah, a liter, <laughs> a liter at least of beer. So we were standing there watching, and all of a sudden the crowd parts, and I turn around just in time to see a lady getting escorted by her Polish friend, and she pukes pink puke 
It's like she strafed me. She like, and just like zipped right by me. And I get a stream of pink puke all over my shoes. And I'm, what? And I'm standing there in an island of pink river and no one is saying anything. The Germans aren't going to criticize the drunk Polish girl because they're like, okay, well, fair enough. You know, She's she, in no shape to apologize. The Polish escort her off the premises to go sleep sober up off. and sleep it off. And I'm like, hey, I didn't invade Poland. My ancestors didn't invade Poland. Come on. I got puked on. What the heck? So I'm very upset. I've got puke all over my shoes, but we can't leave because we want to watch the rest of the game. And it ends up being 0-0. Zero, zero. Neither side scores. I didn't get my big goal moment. I didn't even get the drunk Polish to sink green goal and mock the Germans. We, It's a tie. I got puked on for a tie. And so we go but back. we did have a lot of fun. We got some ice cream. To, yeah, we got some ice cream to, 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 to console ourselves, and I cleaned off my shoes, and away we went. It didn't diminish the experience all that much. It was still fun, though. It was a great experience. So in addition to the World War II stuff and the Holocaust stuff, Berlin has a lot of Cold War history. Really kind of an unfortunate 50 years between 1940 and uh, 1990. Um, but the history of Berlin is that after World War II, the Soviet Union and the United States, France, and the UK, the Allies, we all wanted to have a chunk of Berlin. Now, the Soviets had taken Eastern Germany and the Allies had taken Western Germany. The Soviets wanted Eastern Germany to be communist, but they recognized the significance of Berlin as the capital city, so they agreed to divide it up as well. Now, Berlin is surrounded by East Germany. So you had capitalist West Berlin as sort of an island of capitalism within communist East Germany. And so if you got to West Berlin, you were in capitalist country. You were in a capitalist area. You had escaped the Soviet Union. You could get on a plane and fly to West Berlin, West Germany and they wouldn't be able to stop you or they wouldn't stop you. And so the Soviets realized that a lot of people didn't like how communism was running. It kind of sucked. So they wanted to leave. And so they put up this wall to divide East Berlin, which was Soviet communist, and West Berlin, which was capitalist aligned with the United States. And so they put up this wall to keep the communists from leaving. The Soviet Union was in a lot of ways a prison state. You couldn't get out. But people wanted to get out. And so that's what this wall was all about. The wall strung the city in two. But in 1989, the Germans tore it down. They reunited East and West Berlin and reunited East and West Germany, which is what Germany is today. Most of the wall is gone, rightly so. I wouldn't want a big wall that divided my city staying around too much. So they destroyed most of it, but they preserved a handful of the pieces in various places throughout the city. So you can see various places throughout the city. One of the best ones is near what it, what used to be called Checkpoint Charlie. There's various Cold War artifact elements near there. One of the best ones was a complete reproduction of Berlin during that time. You walk into this sort of reproduction area and you get to see all the barbed wire and over there is communist Soviet Union over here is the capitalist West and you get to see what it was like back then but then you get to see the preserved wall itself which is this concrete wall with these round tops and there used to be barbed wire it's not there anymore and it's covered in spray paint because 
the graffiti on the West was sort of a reminder that we had the ability to touch this. This is on our side. The graffiti on the other side, well, you couldn't graffiti it because the Soviets would shoot you if you got close. It's pretty pristine, actually, yeah, for that they, reason. They preserved a lot of it, and so it's fun to see all the graffiti from 40 or so years ago that is saying, hey, we should tear this down and all that stuff. Near the Checkpoint Charlie itself, which is this border where if you wanted to get from the Soviet side to the west, you had to go through a checkpoint through the American customs agents or the Soviet customs agents. Near there is what one of the most interesting museums out there. It's relatively small, but it's called the Checkpoint Charlie Museum. It's a museum dedicated to the people and methods of getting over the Berlin Wall. And it's fascinating. It's like a little rebellious museum. There's a battering ram that someone rammed down a piece of the wall when it wasn't that high. There's a plane that someone built to get from East Germany to West Germany. My favorite is an underwater propeller set that allowed a scuba diver to be drug along with this propeller under the river which was patrolled, they would see if you tried swimming through the river uh, from the east to the west, they'd catch you. So he had to stay underwater at night. And he had this propeller device and he used to go under the river and cross into West Germany. When he got there, he realized that he'd invented something, so he patented it and he sold it. So it's just hilarious to me that the, the method that this person used to escape communism was the thing that he patented when he got into the capitalist West and he used it to make money. And, and it's, what, what a wonderful metaphor for the horrors of the Soviet Union, but the greatness that is, I mean, I'm not going to say capitalism is the best system in the world, but it's the least worst. <laughs> and so it's a lot better than the Soviet Union, that's for darn sure. And you get to see all these sadly horrifying examples of mistreatment of the Germans during the Soviet occupation and, you know, families being broken up and, and just, just famine and all sorts of trying times. But the courageous people who made it over the wall and got into the West, and it's a great artifact for that reason. Right. They told the story of this woman who is separated from her daughters. And I'm not going to get into this full story because even standing in the museum, I was trembling with rage. And they, I'm standing there reading this exhibit. David walks up to me and asks him, okay, because I've got just these white-hot tears streaming down my face because I'm so enraged at this woman who wanted a capitalist, capitalistic life and a free life, who was separated from her daughters for, for this desire that they were taken away from her. They said, she's not a good communist, so we're going to take your children. And it was one of the most emotionally harrowing events of that particular set of museums. And it actually said at the end of the story, if you know who this person is or you can help us, this person to this day is looking for her children. Right. So just an emotionally attuned exhibit. Now that, I feel like we've done nothing but talk about tragedy in Berlin and there's certainly a lot of it. One of the more interesting Cold War museums that I've been to was a bit cheeky actually. It's called the DDR Museum. DDR is what stood for the, the East Germany. You know, East Germany was the DDR. And so this is not near that Berlin Wall area. It's, it's by the river. It's closer to Museum Island, actually. The DDR Museum is more of a tongue-in-cheek, 
yeah, the Cold War was terrible. Teehee, you know, like, haha, look how bad our lives were. Look at this Trabant. Look how terrible this car is. Let's let's have you drive on a simulator of it. Haha, it sucks. It breaks down all the time. Look at our stupid kitchens that we had to suffer through. It's it's an it more interactive, it's funny, and it's kind of pointing out the ludicrous nature of communism, the ludicrous nature of the police state, that you couldn't say anything. You could you know, and, and then all the little ways they could get around sensors and all that other stuff. And so it's a fun, lightning experience of a of a horribly tragic period in, in, in German history. A very good and very necessary emotional palate cleanser. Right. One of the things that we did food-wise that I regret, but Jessica doesn't, that day at lunch we had... Currywurst. Now, I don't dislike currywurst ex itself. It's essentially a hot dog with curried ketchup. Nothing wrong with that. But the way they serve it in Berlin is just smothered in ketchup. And I'm like, this is just too much ketchup. And all you did was pour a little curry powder on it. That's not lunch. That's that's awful. What that's is this? street food. It was delicious. I, it was it was decent enough sausage, but it's like, you know, ease up on the ketchup, guys. It was the guys. best hot dog I ever had it, in my life. And no, it was far from the best hot dog I've ever had. It was it's just this curry powder on a little ketchup. Very ubiquitous in throughout Berlin, uh, the curry versed. Be careful on the ketchup, but the sausages are still very good. So that night, our last night in Berlin, we wanted a really nice traditional German dinner. Again, a palate cleanser. We wanted something a little bit more jolly. We happen upon a Munich-style beer hall. There's kind of a joke that our German friends like to tell us that the, 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 the Munich people are happy and the Berliners are not happy. And so when we told them this story, they're like, oh, of course, you went to a Munich-style place. That's where the happy people go. Uh, you know what? I don't know enough about that to, to comment, but I will say this was the happiest restaurant we found in Berlin. Lots of big beers, lots of pickled foods and sausages and potatoes. It was just a great experience. So that leads us to our favorite things about Berlin. I think that the beer I had at that beer hall, some of the darker Munich style lagers, some of the lighter Munich style Pilsners, that beer was phenomenal. See, you like Pilsners. When it comes to America, well, you can get here. I don't like Pilsners. But while we were on Alexanderplatz Square, we happened to find a shelter from a downpour, this little tropical bar called Aruba. Do you remember this place? The they, they had set netting? up like a little mini festival. They're like, hey, let's pretend it's the tropics. And they set up this little festival area. The rain certainly contributed. And so we had these amazing tropical drinks that you would not expect to find in Berlin. I don't think it's a recreatable experience. I don't think it is. It was a one-time thing like, hey, look, let's pretend it's the tropics. Oh, it's the thunderstorm. Well, let's have some fancy uh, uh, tropical cocktails. And so I really did enjoy that experience just because it was so far outside of our expect expected range. Well, then what was your favorite food if you didn't find a good beer? The street food. The donor kebabs and the currywurst. The donor kebabs. We haven't. We didn't actually talk about those. Again, with the currywurst, ubiquitous. Just like you get a euro here in the states, these kebabs are everywhere, and they're just sliced meat on pita bread, and it's delicious. Right. It's a spinning vertical shaft of meat. It's got a roaster on one side, and the meat spins past this roaster, and it 
renders the fat in the meat and it crisps it up and then they slice it off and put it on this pita. They top it with some sauce. I hand it to you all rolled up. Oh my gosh. Sounds like you like the kebab better than the curry first. Oh, the curry first was really good too, but that kebab, I, I legitimately cannot decide between the two because on one hand you have this greasy hot dog with this wonderful umami flavor and then that tangy ketchup and the spice of the curry and all of that in combination. But then you've got this donor kebab on the other hand. I can make a meal out of both. I mean, both were decent. Oh, no, I actually didn't like the currywurst. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that meal we had at the Munich Beer Hall, I had the best beer and I had the best uh, dinner there. That German sausage and, and potatoes was just phenomenal. They were good. I will give you that. Okay, so what was your favorite thing about Berlin? Even though it infuriated me and made me just weep with rage, the Checkpoint Charlie Museum. It is such a unique and eye-opening experience. You must see the Checkpoint Charlie Museum. I, I can't disagree with the you, you making a museum a favorite thing, but my favorite thing was actually Museum Island itself. And it's really hard for me to narrow down which specific one. On the one hand, you've got the, the new museum, the Egyptian artifacts. It's just so, so thorough and complete and wonderful. And then you've got the Pergamon. Oh my gosh, I'm walking through the Ishtar Gate. But then I can't. I count it. It's not on Museum Island itself, but it's so close. I count it. The German History Museum. That cluster of museums is great. But maybe if I were to take a step back and say, what's my favorite thing about Berlin? The museums. There are so many, and they're so varied and so enthralling and and unique. You can't get a museum like experience like that anywhere else in the world. There's every type of historical time period. And the German history itself is just so full of conflict and full of stories that... And full of tragedy. Right. You, As a history buff, Berlin is just chock full of museums and history. I think I'm going to take the, the drinks this time. By all means. So Jessica said she doesn't like Pilsners. I like Pilsners. They have to be done right, and the Germans do them well. Here's the caveat, though. If you want a German Pilsner, in the Cologne episode, we told you that the best way to drink a Kolsch is with a quarter liter. The best way to drink a Berlin Pilsner is with a half liter. I love a half liter. It's the perfect size because a quarter liter, it sometimes is hard to wave down the server to get a refill. It's also a little smaller. You don't get a big mouthful. You don't get your nose in there. The half liter is size enough to have some heft to it when you lift it, you get a full nose of that light, crisp, grainy aroma from a nice Pilsner, but you can also get your whole mouthful in it. And, and a Pilsner, those light German lagers, you want a decent mouthful. The problem with a liter though, and that's on offer, if you go to one of these German restaurants, you will often see quarter liter, half liter, and full liter prices. I do not recommend getting a full liter. We did this once. In my experience, I will never drink a liter of beer fast enough to where it does not get warm by the time I reach the bottom of that glass. That said, it's an experience you should have. May get a liter of beer, but then fall back on the half liter. Do it once. It's, it's fair enough, but like you're going to get some warm beer at the bottom. But the half liter of Pilsner. So here's the way you get, drink a half liter of Pilsner. You either pour it yourself or you go to a restaurant, you get a half liter. I have only found this at a handful of places in the States. If you go to a really traditional German restaurant, I found one in New York City that did this. I haven't found a lot in other places. You can get liter pours at these really traditional places. Don't get a quarter, don't get a liter, get a half liter, 
get a nice noseful, a nice mouthful, and enjoy. So, this has been Passports and Birth Control. Don't forget your passport. Don't forget your birth control. Like Passports and Birth Control? Give us a review and follow us on Instagram. Tell us in the comments where you'd like us to go next and support us on Patreon. Your support will send us more places and help us create more episodes.